Hello, I'm Smitha Tharoor and welcome to Stories of Unconscious Bias, a podcast where I ask guests from around the world to share their story and to reflect on their life experiences with unconscious bias. I hope you enjoy listening. They were recorded globally under COVID-19 lockdown conditions. Listeners, we have a two-part episode this time. Part two will be posted next week. I would like to introduce Anthony Lloyd. Anthony is a foreign correspondent for The Times in the UK. His work is primarily focused on areas of conflict, and since he began reporting in 1993, he has reported from wars including Bosnia, Syria, Afghanistan and Iraq. I'm hugely privileged to have this conversation with Anthony, as I know that he will have very many stories to share with us about unconscious bias. Welcome, Anthony. Smither, thank you. So, Anthony, as we both agreed, um, we are going to be talking about unconscious bias. Now, these are just two words. But when you hear these two words, what do they mean to you? As I understand it, um, and this is intuitively, I mean, I can look up the definition easily enough, but as as I understand it, unconscious bias usually, but not always, refers to a deep-rooted, unrealized prejudice often with racist connotations, but not always. I mean, one can have an unconscious bias uh, about almost anything, but it has overall a negative connotation, although it is possible that it may it may have a positive. It's usually usually a negative. You're absolutely right. But you're but you're also right in the fact that um, in a weird sort of way, we have an unconscious bias uh, explanation and understanding of the words unconscious bias, because we most often see it as negative rather than positive, um, which is our own unconscious bias, if you think about it. But you are right. Um, more often than not, we, we jump to conclusions um, based on some reason or the other. And very often it is it is a negative conclusion. And when you were saying that, I began to think about um, a story that somebody else actually shared with me. I was speaking at a conference um, about the unconscious bias. And after the conference, a young white English woman came up to me. Um, my guess is she would be in her mid-30s. And she spoke to me and she wanted some advice from me. And what was interesting is she said to me that she is married to a Muslim man uh, and she is now a practicing Muslim woman. She has a little boy aged five or six and she is looking at schooling for her son. Um, and she is very concerned that if she allows her son to explain to his friends when he goes out to play that he is a practicing Muslim, there might be problems. And so she visually, obviously, being a white English woman, doesn't you would not assume you would not assume her religion or you may think she's anything but Muslim. But she seemed to have her own stories and unconscious biases on how she felt people would react both to her and to her son um, purely because of their practicing religion. And I found that really, really interesting. So when you're hearing stories like this, Anthony, what kind of, I mean, you have a million stories and I know that because because of your amazing, interesting experiences in over so many years in so many countries. But any particular story that comes to mind for you that you would like to share with us about unconscious bias? Well, uh, I've got <laughs> quite a lot of stories because war for a start is full of bias and deep rooted 
social, historical bias and prejudice, often uh, usually completely unrealized, which then often becomes realized in war. People's prejudices become conscious and accepted and antagonized in war. So, so I see my life is related to people's bias, whether it's unconscious or not. Um, I would say with that story, what's interesting is that um, I would hope that her little boy, age five, wouldn't necessarily be having to talk about what faith he practiced while playing with his friends, uh, no more than they would be telling him, well, we are practicing Christians or we are uh, atheists. However, for me, as I say, I deal with bias the whole time. And first of all, in, in talking about the two instances which have come to my mind, anybody who says to me they do not have conscious bias, well, peace be upon them, because they must already be dead. They're with the angelic host, and I hope they enjoy their celestial swoops. I have many, many elements of unconscious bias with me. Um, some of them may well be related to race. Some of them could be related to poverty. I don't think that makes me a racist snob. But like any character flaw, uh, there are things that I'm aware of and I try and aim off for. So I try and question myself in environments and think, gosh, do I have, am I being biased here in some way, some unseen way, and see if I can see if I can correct that. But I'm not speaking as a saint here. I'm speaking as someone who is full of prejudice because I'm neither dead nor a rock. But where unconscious bias becomes more interesting to me is not when it's unrealized, because if it's unrealized, then someone's just going to act like a jerk without questioning themselves. But it's more interesting where it is challenged or it is realized or even surprised. So, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, I have two stories which I wanted to discuss. And in both of them, there were issues of unconscious bias, but there was also challenge and surprise. The first story was occurred in West Africa in Sierra Leone 20 years ago. And there was a ceasefire during the war. There it was still a very uh, tense time. And I was driving up country uh, on a jungle road. There was a, a driver. Uh, the guy who was working with me is an interpreter who was in the front passenger seat. And oh, sorry, I was in the front passenger seat. He was behind me in, in, in the rear passenger seat. He was a friend of mine, the interpreter. And he was in his late 20s at the time. And he was, how to describe this? He was a yeah, West African, sexually promiscuous uh, guy, very charming, very good company, who I'd known across a, a few years. I've described him as in these terms uh, for what what follows. Obviously, on some level, I hadn't really thought about it like that. I had thought about my friend who was someone who would be in a high risk HIV bracket. Now, that's not how consciously <clears throat> I thought about my friend in, in my dealings with him. But for what happened next, that is is clearly what what I had in my unconscious, because as we drive through a rebel area, there is suddenly a loud bang, which is our cars, our vehicles, front wheel bursting. And the driver, whose role was pretty negative throughout all of what followed, did the most stupid thing. We were traveling too fast to begin with, and he yanked it on the brakes. So the car went into a spin 
and then a roll. And it just so happened there was a small ravine by the side of the road and it went over the ravine. And I was knocked unconscious. <clears throat> and when I came to, I was upside down and was very, conf- very confused because it's quite confusing coming, becoming conscious upside down. And I was covered in fuel and I saw some lights. I was filling my safety belts. So I clicked out, sort of fell a bit on the ground and scrambled out of this tunnel of light and uh, stood up and I was injured. Uh, and I, it took a bit of time to realize the first thing I saw was blood all over the floor. And I was like, whose blood is this? And the horizon was wobbling a bit. And then I realized it was actually my blood. And the more I turned around, the more it was coming down one of my arms and also out my head. And then I tried to make sense of the car, which was upside down and, and quite mangled. And the driver was in the car. He was unconscious, but and he was penetrated through his arm by some metal. But he was basically okay. I mean, messed up, but okay. He was going to live. But then I couldn't find my friend. I couldn't find my friend. The whole roof had been torn off the car. So eventually I found my friend five meters away. And he was lying on the ground very calmly, staring up at the sky, not moving, with some blood around his mouth. And so I'm thinking... Well, I don't know what I'm thinking, but he's he's clearly very badly injured and he doesn't appear to be breathing and he's got blood around his mouth. So I think, right, I know I'm completely trained in all this. I'm going to give him CPR, right? Just as I'm bending down, I think I gave him some compressions. And as I'm bending down to give him the kiss of life, I'm suddenly thinking, well, wait a minute. Wait a minute here. Um, my friend is a promiscuous African guy. And he's HIV high risk group and I'm covered in blood anyway. I'm bleeding. Uh, And now I don't know to what extent that is unconscious bias, to what extent there is a race element there or to what extent as well. Those concerns and issues would have been exactly the same if it was uh, someone from outside. Uh, that sort of bracket, say it was an, an elder white or, 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 or a juvenile white. I, I, I don't know. But the scene I'm dealing with is promiscuous, young, black male, not breathing, blood, fro- blood and froth out of his mouth. But then I thought, and this is all very quickly, I'm not sitting down and having a sort of uh, analysis session about this at the time. We're speaking about seconds. Then I'm thinking, listen. I can't play God here, right? Also, it's my it's my friend. So I started giving him full-on CPR, you know, like mouth-to-mouth and chest compressions at a five-to-one ratio, whatever it was. And uh, <laughs> I don't know if you've done CPR before, but believe me, whatever's in that mouth, you get in your mouth because you can't break contact before uh, the chest pressure on them shoots it back into your mouth. So th- there's a bit of a blood fest going on, right? I get some pulse back into him. But at that moment... About 20 people come out of the bush around us, some with pangas with machetes. But they're, they're farmers. They're not rebels. There's not, I don't see Kalashnikov there. So my immediate, uh, my immediate impression then is like, great, these are farmers who have heard the, the uh, shenanigan of the car rolling and crashing and all, all the rest of it and uh, have come to help us. So... I'm on my knees and I turn around to them. I'm covered in blood trying to 
keep my friend alive. I say, well, help, uh, you know, help us, please. Well, they don't. <laughs> they don't. They rob me straight off because the car's a mess. There's food and water. Our supplies for going up country is scattered around the wreckage of this sort of upturned vehicle. And they see me, this this vulnerable and injured survivor with two bodies. Uh, and they see supplies, they see food and, and water. So they start just stepping around me, just robbing everything. Not everybody. As I'm trying to keep Alio alive, some guy comes down beside me and he's holding Alio's wrist to get his, test his pulse. And he's saying, you've got a pulse back on him. You've got a pulse back on him. And so, but there's other guys there this time. They turn up and they're serious and they're sort of beginning to slap their machetes in the palm of their hands. And I realize these guys are thinking of finishing me off. And, you know, why shouldn't they now? I've realized the laws of this place of the jungle in the war are that you don't help an injured RTA road traffic accident victim if you just rob them. And maybe if someone's like a pain in the ass survivor, maybe you kill them, right? Now, to cut a long story short, the one thing I still had with me was a satellite phone. So before things got ugly, I put in a call to someone in Freetown and I said, listen, I've just had a, a, a desperate car accident. There's, there's, I got one guy who's dying and one guy who's injured. And if you can help me anywhere, you can. I, but Freetown was a couple of hundred miles away, a hundred and something miles away from where I was. Meantime... As it happened, a big rebel commander suddenly turned up with his 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 technical, his cut down sort of gun vehicles and his guys. And he sees what's going on. Now, as soon as he turns up, he's an RUF guy. Uh, but, you know, these are badass rebels. And now I'm like, I'm finished now. And I'm still trying to keep my friend alive. Um, I've got blood and sort of frost drooling out of my mouth and coming out of his head. And it's a it's a it's a complete fest. Right. Anyway, to my incredible surprise, this is quite a foreboding figure. This guy, he says to me, does anybody know you're here in a, in a kind of spooky way? So I waste no time saying, yeah, yeah, they do. Actually, I've just called the United Nations in Freetown because i'm worried if i say no one knows i'm here that they're gonna kill me too mm-hmm. anyway then he says oh okay and his men pick me and the other two casualties up and they put us in the back of a technical then they're not friendly but they're not mm, totally hostile either and they drive me us less than five minutes up a road and then just dump us in the verge side and drive off. And as I stagger up, I realize now they've dumped us at the base of a Nigeria, small Nigerian uh, fire base. Nigerian troops have been fighting against these rebels, but as I say, there's a ceasefire that's ongoing. So the Nigerians come out, they drag us inside, Nigerian soldiers. And I'm still trying to work my friend, right, to keep him alive. And I'm shouting at these uh, Nigerian soldiers in I don't doubt a fairly imperious way. Get me some oxygen. What are you doing standing there? Get me, get me your medics, get me your doctors. And doubtless, as I say, I was sounding probably pretty arrogant and imperious, but also I was fighting for the life of my friend, right? So there's a time to sound 
empirics over a man's life, right? Anyway, and they're looking at me like, now I replay back, and they're looking at me thinking, hey, white man, this is not your world. We don't have any oxygen, and we don't have a medic. We're in the middle of a war. It's a far base. Don't judge us by your rules. I'm sure, because finally I realized they're just standing at me, and I'm freaking out at the mother stage, really angry with my expectation. And then I realized Ali's dead. Is like I'm working a corpse here. So I stand up and then I look at them through this next hoop of realization. And I think, listen, no, they don't have anything, right? They're staring at me as I'm screaming for oxygen and doctors to try and save my friend and they don't have it. They also, they're not going to care about me now. They're not going to wish me harm. They're not going to kill me or anything. But I wonder what's next in the situation because I'm of no interest to these people. Uh, that was definitely bias, right? I was definitely thinking black soldiers they're dealing with this annoying white guy who's injured, who's been speaking to them like a, he's a king. But you know what? <clears throat> when I stood up and I closed Ali's eyes and I crossed his hands, like his arms, in recognition he's dead, they let out. There were about, I think about eight or ten soldiers there, one or two women amongst them. They let out this kind of sigh, like... He's got it. The guy's got it. His friend's dead. And uh, then they gathered around me and they put they were putting their arms around my shoulders and they were shaking me with this low sort of African incantation. And it was some recognition. Totally. It was some recognition from them that hey, you're all messed up. You've just lost your friend you were trying to save. It doesn't matter you're acting like a bit of an arsehole when you're trying to save him because we know how it is. We've lost people too. But now you're, you're alone. You're standing there. And we know how that is. And we want to be supportive to you. That was kind of what was going on. That's not an impression. That's a certainty. And I'll Gosh. never forget that moment. And as I think about it in age, I mean, I'm talking about an event 20 years ago. I realize how much more, how much more kind and aware they were than I was, I think is what I'm trying to say. Now, that story I'm saying, it's not a, not a, <laughs> far from a perfect and clean example of my unconscious bias or someone else's there are a series of hoops there in which my thoughts and expectations and presumptions sometimes interface with unconscious bias and sometimes didn't they were fairly it was a fairly desperate situation i, I like to Let think me... i did the right thing but um i think that was a story full of expectations being challenged and being surprised often Yes, exactly. And I'm listening to your story and I was wanting to respond, but I didn't dare because the story was so fascinating and so involved at so many different levels. If you could have seen my face, you would have seen me laugh, smile, look upset, look worried. And the expressions that crossed my face as I was hearing your story was was was, was telling in itself. Um, and there were many, many things I took away, Anthony, listening to this incredible story. Uh, firstly, of course, a story that none of us would even know what it felt like or looked like because 
we don't do what you do for a living. And therefore, our listeners will be listening uh, uh, and visualizing some sort of movie they might have seen rather than real life, um, which in itself is, is fascinating. But if we even take away from that and we just break it down and we look at what we are talking about, what you and I are talking about, which are unconscious biases, and what you have shared with us uh, are a few different aspects of unconscious bias. So for one, you know someone, you know somebody really, really well. And I'm saying, and I'm paraphrasing it differently because we all know people, we all have friends. Um, we, we, we love our friends, but we also have an opinion on them, whether they're promiscuous, whether they're funny, whether they're you know athletic, it doesn't matter what it is. Uh, and then based on that, we have other uh, connotations that are that are added. And then based also on that, if it happens to me in emergency time, which it was for you, you can't help but that comes in. It just jumps jumps into our head. And what what can we need to do about it? And the other aspect that you said is you you it it took you longer for you to tell me this story than for when when it actually happened. There you were by the side, and we're talking split second. And that's what's so interesting about unconscious bias. It's like the click of a finger. You're there, you look at somebody, you have to decide what you want to do. There are a whole bunch of stuff going on through your mind, wondering, is this right? Is this wrong? Oh my God, will you have HIV? Am I risking my life? All of that, but then you do what you do. And all of that is taken, the click of a finger, that amount of time. You race through your head, you made a decision, and you started giving him CPR. What what tell, what tell that, that part of your story tells me is that it was a very split second that maybe you were thinking of something, but you prioritized based on that. It was your, as Daniel Kahneman says in his book, Thinking Fast and Slow, your fast brain kicked in and you decided his life is far more important than anything else at that point in time. Then another aspect of, of this absolutely incredible story that you've shared with us is, of course, uh, the aspect of, of black and white, a race. And why would... Um, you know, if a few farmers come out and because they see a white man, and this is what I hear uh, from from your story, and it'll be interesting to see what, what the listeners are hearing when they hear your story. But uh, uh, you are in Africa, you are clearly a white man, you're clearly injured. But of course, if you're white, then you must have money. And for them, because their life and their experiences are not the same as yours, and they don't have the same privileges, their priorities, you're injured, now is an opportunity to, to, to rob you blind if they can. And then, of course, the last story. And the last story is just so moving because that's your unconscious bias jumping in. You're thinking, God's sake, here I am, this stupid white arrogant man shouting and yelling. doesn't matter what your reasoning is. And, of course, I, don't, I, I completely understand whether you were white, black or Indian or any other color or gender or, or age, you would have probably behaved in exactly the same way because you were desperate. And it isn't about how you sound, it's about getting help. And that's really all that mattered. But because you are white, and because you are in an area that everybody around you are not white, are all black, you're thinking, oh, oh, these people are going to judge me as this X, Y, Z. But of course, that's not what they do. And they, and they, and they support you in a way that, that even now, 20 years later, you can remember and moves you. I mean, three amazing, amazing um, stories and one larger story that that all of us listeners will be looking back on and reflecting and and taking away. So I really appreciate you sharing the story, Anthony. Oh, Smith, can would, I interject please, quickly? Please do. I have one do. small epilogue on that story, which was also of interest. As I as this morning, I was uh, 
walking in the field thinking uh, about unconscious bias and, and the conversation I was going to have with you. And, and this particular was deciding what stories to talk about. So I talked about this one. As it happened at the end of that day, uh, I ended up in hospital in Freetown, Sierra Leone's capital. I ended up in Connaught Hospital. And I was hospitalized for a few days. And um, I went back to Connaught Hospital in 2014, 14 years later, when I was uh, covering the Ebola epidemic in Freetown. And I was in Freetown for about 10 days and I, I went back to that hospital and I interviewed Sierra Leonean medical staff who, who were treating victims of Ebola and some British staff there too. And this was, Ebola is a terrifying uh, disease. It's not as opaque and changing and overall does not have the same global threat that coronavirus does, but it's a horrible disease. It's got a very, very fast transmission and very dramatic and horrible results with a very, very, very high mortality rate. Anyway, Freetown during that time, 2014, was as dramatic and horrible as you would expect. But I remember when I left and uh, I saw it all. I saw dead people in the streets, the sound of ambulances all the time it was like an apocalypse felt like the coming of apocalypse then and and i ended up back in this hospital speaking to, to staff as, as a journalist and remembering when i'd lain there as a casualty and when i left i remember thinking yeah Ebola's really horrible but there was some other unconscious bias with me which definitely meant yeah, another another African story that's just such a horrible thing to have come out of the jungle and which it had it had come out of deep jungle and, and moved along communication routes and hit an African city and I was looking this morning at photographs I'd taken at that time and a small film I'd made and I remembered then my unconscious bias at assuming it was another horrible African story that somehow epidemic pandemic was something which happened there well here we are now well, that's so true, Anthony, and I'm glad, and I'm glad you brought it into into what uh, you and I are are experiencing. You are in in the United Kingdom. I am in COVID land in Delhi, and and somebody else in California are all experiencing exactly uh, the same situation. We're all trying to self isolate, and we're all working through um, this epidemic that's taken over the world. So I'm I appreciate that that you brought that into the context of today's world, um, which is which is very relevant and, and very important for the listeners and all of us to hear. But there's one more question I want to ask you, because you are Anthony Lloyd and you are the Times correspondent. And I know that many, if not all our listeners, will know of how you were in Syria and you found Shamima Begum. I'm going to pause here until next week when we hear Anthony's story of finding Shamima Begum in Syria and his unconscious biases at that time. <laughs>